Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I am only seven, but I understand that it is this fact, more than any other, that makes my family different. We don't go to school. Our guest today was 17 when she first entered a classroom. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. Tara Westover has experienced both the most unconventional and elite ends of education. The youngest of seven children in a Mormon family with apocalyptic beliefs, she grew up sorting scrap metal on an isolated farm in Idaho. But she went on to study at Harvard and to gain a PhD in history from Cambridge University in Britain. Educated, her memoir is the story of these two very different worlds, and it made Barack Obama's list of favourite books of the year. American politicians on both sides have long criticised the country's public education system. Ronald Reagan worried about a rising tide of mediocrity. Charter schools were conceived as a Clinton-era remedy to that. George W. Bush spoke of the soft bigotry of low expectations. The current education secretary, Betsy DeVos, champions deregulation of private schools to increase choice for students. So as policymakers divide over how and what young people should learn, this week we're asking, what does it mean to be educated? Welcome, Tara. Thanks for having me on the show. Great pleasure. So tell me about your early education. I mentioned briefly that your family had quite strong, quite fundamentalist beliefs, and that affected the way that you were taught or not taught from the start. Yeah, so my my family was a bit unusual, even for my southern, very small rural farming town that I grew up in. I was the youngest of seven children. My dad had these kind of radical beliefs, so his beliefs made him opposed to a lot of the institutions that most people just take for granted. So doctors and hospitals were out of the question. We never went. We were born at home, delivered by kind of unofficial midwives, and we were never registered a lot of us for birth certificates, for example. I got my birth certificate when I was nine. And then, of course, we never went to school because my dad was concerned that it had been infiltrated and corrupted by some kind of... It's hard to explain, really. I guess the closest thing I could say is the Illuminati that old conspiracy theory that there was this nefarious organization that had infiltrated the government and he thought the public schools. So he just wanted to keep us at home, away from all of that. And were you taught at at home? You said when you were seven there in your little clip from your book that you realized this is different, I don't go to school. So you knew enough about what other children did and how were you taught? I was taught how to read. Being literate was very important to my family and we had to be able to read in order to read the Bible. So I was taught to read at a very young age. But there wasn't anything like a formal education. I never wrote an essay for my mother. We never had a, a lecture or an exam or anything like that. So it was it was pretty informal. And given that, I mean, how did you respond to that time in your education? I think you write it in the book very movingly about going off and kind of sort of hiding away to write things or to read things. Knowledge almost like a secret pleasure. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I didn't read that much as a child. I read a lot of 
religious books because I, I thought I was supposed to do that. So I did do that. And I kept a journal that I wrote in really regularly from the time I was very young. But I lived a kind of wild American Western life. You know, we had a mountain, we had a junkyard, we had horses that we broke ourselves. And this was my day to day. And I was pretty happy with that. I think the thing about being a child is whatever life you have, as far as you know, that's normal. And so whatever world your parents build for you feels like the world the way it should be. So I knew other kids went to school and that we didn't. But the way I experienced that was that we were right and they were wrong. And I would go through this whole process of becoming educated. And I put that in kind of air quotes because I think what it means to become educated is a massive question. But I think part of what everyone goes through when they go through that experience of becoming educated is is figuring out what bits of that world that was built for them in their childhood are they going to hold on to and what bits are they going to let go of and how are they going to reconcile those relationships. I think education is a is a whole process of working out who you are from who you were and the identity that you choose from the ones other people give to you. And, uh, and I, I think that's what education is for. And when you did decide you wanted to study and that you would need, need to leave home to do that, what sort of reaction did you get? My father had pretty strong feelings that I stay at home and become an herbalist like my mother or become a midwife like my mother. Again, a kind of self-taught midwife, not like here. There was no – she didn't go to school or get a certificate. But I – it's a strange thing to explain to people. I ended up waking up every morning for about a year and trying to teach myself algebra so that I could take the ACT, which is a test that you get, gets you into college basically. And I get asked a lot by people, you know, how did you have the drive or the fortitude or the conviction to do this? And I have a really disappointing answer for them because <laughs> I don't really know. But I think I think the closest thing to an answer I can give you is that when I was around eight years old, my brother Tyler played me some opera music. It was the first time I'd ever heard it. And the second that I heard an aria, I just understood that that style of singing was not something that you just knew how to do naturally. You had to go somewhere and learn that. There were people in the world, somewhere in the world, that knew how to sing like that, and you had to go find them and learn from them. And I understood the university as being that place. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that I taught myself algebra because I love to sing. And <laughs> I don't know if there's much of a lesson to be extracted from that, but if there is, I think it's that we should maybe be very careful before we kill off any passion in a child, you don't really know where a passion will take will take someone, but you know that having no passion will take them nowhere. And my love of music took me to Brigham Young University. That's where I discovered history. That's where I discovered philosophy. That would take me to Cambridge. When I was at Cambridge, I would discover language. I would eventually write this book. And all of that, I think, sprang, strangely enough, from just a love of song. And that's nowhere near where I ended up. I want to just stay back a little, if I could, in your story and your time at Brigham Young in Utah, obviously the great Mormon college. You'd come from, and we were quite careful really in, in sort of describing your background because you weren't from a background which all Mormons would accept as being in any sense the mainstream of their faith. You go to Brigham Young, which I suppose is where you know, the most ambitious Mormons go to study. How did you arrive there and how did you get along? Uh, badly. Uh, <laughs> for a couple of reasons. My family weren't representative of Mormonism at all. My whole town was Mormon and everybody went to school. They had birth certificates. They went to the doctor. My family was this kind of radical or extreme version of Mormonism. So when I went to Brigham Young University, which is full of mainstream Mormons, I didn't fit in well at all. Uh, for one thing, I'd never been around 
kids my own age. I hadn't really had friends in that traditional sense. So there was some serious social skills that were rather badly uh, they were lacking, and uh, the other the other thing of it was uh, was a spiritual thing because I had been raised in this more extreme version. I actually found BYU to be incredibly licentious, <laughs> so I was looking at these very devout, pious Mormons and just appalled by the way they dressed, what they ate, the movies they watched, everything. I thought that they were mm. these really licentious, wicked people. And then the third thing was ignorance, because I had not been educated. There were things that separated me from my peers. That was just a knowledge of the world. In one of my first lectures, I raised my hand and I asked what the Holocaust was. I'd never heard of it before. And the other students, they very much heard that as they heard that as me denying it, actually. So they heard it as anti-Semitism. I mean, I didn't mean it that way. I'd never I had no idea what they were talking about. But there were there were all of these things that would just kind of separate you from what people. what years were you at Brigham Young? So January of 2005 until middle of 2008, I guess. So Maybe I'm, even 2004, sorry. <laughs> I'm just wondering how your own experience then fitted with what America was going through at the time. And did you feel very connected to the broader American story when you... No. Said, <laughs> <laughs> no, the world, my world was that mountain I grew up on. And then it slowly expanded to include that drive between Idaho and Salt Lake City, which is about three and a half hours. And no, I mean, New York was a a place for me that I was vaguely aware existed because of 9-11. I knew that New York had been hit by something terrible. But no, I would say this funny thing happened to me when I went to London for the first time. And I, I had read the Harry Potter books. My grandmother had given them to me. Of course. Well, it, sitting, at least it got that far, yes. Yeah, when I was a teenager, I'd come across them. And um, I was sitting in King's Cross, and I looked over and I saw the, the hand cart, the, the cart they have there that's pushed into the wall. It used to be a bit different, I think, than it is now, but I saw it. And I looked at the sign that said King's Cross, and I realized I was in London. I just finally put it all together, and I realized, oh, not everything in the book was made up. Like, I had thought that she'd made up everything. I'd not realized London was a real place when I was reading those books. I'd not realized have, King's Cross was a real place. We have puggles as well. We place. <laughs> yeah, so then I, got to, I went and kind of reread them and sorted out, oh, these are real things to which she's attached fiction. Tell me just the end of your formative years. What then happens in your family? Because the thing that sort of puzzled me um, going th- through your book is you're both extremely isolated, as, as you, you describe, and these very strong views, which are survivalism, driven by your father for the end of the world. And yet a number of your siblings also have PhDs. I think it's three out of seven in the family, which would be in remarkably high proportion, uh, even for a generation. We're very divided. I mean, there's two branches. Yeah, there's kind of half of us who uh, don't have a high school diploma. Some of my siblings have, have in their later years gotten a GED or, or things like that. But yeah, this incredible division, I would say, between the three of us who just took education and went all the way, and then the four of us who, who didn't. And I Can try... Can account for that? I can't account for it. I, I caution people against trying to extrapolate social policy from it. Because you could say, well, let's deprive everyone of, a, of an education because then roughly three out of seven will really overcompensate. And once they get a hold of it, they'll be absolutely crazy for it. And that is what happened with us. But I, I think my brothers, if you met them... <laughs> They, they, they were just academically minded. They were scientists. They just were from the time they were very young. And yes, they fought their way out of the, the ignorance that they'd been raised with and the, the lack of education. But I think it was hard for them. And I, I wouldn't say just because they were able to do it that it would be a reasonable thing to say to everybody, oh, let's deprive everyone of education and hope it works out. Well, let's not talk about social policy from that 
point of view, but tell me a bit about what you think having such an unorthodox upbringing did prepare you for. I mean, are there things that you can learn perhaps from that more independent way of approaching passions and discovery than you've seen since, since you've been in more formal education? I think there are things that I'm comfortable saying, uh, even with my reluctance to extrapolate from a small sample size. But one of the things that struck me from moving out of the way I was raised and into a more mainstream society and therefore a more mainstream way of thinking about education is the degree to which education has become standardized and institutionalized. It seems education is really about discovery. It's about learning and that gets lost, I think, pretty quickly when when we lose that distinction between an education and a school, for example. I really don't think they're the same thing. I, I think that a school is just the mechanism that we use to try to impart an education. There's something terribly passive, I would say, about the way that education seems to be conceived of in the mainstream. I, I kind of go back to John Dewey on this, that great education reformer. He said that there are two components to an education. There's the individual and the social, or what the individual brings to their education and what society brings to that education. And he says the two have to be in balance. The way I see it, I think my parents way overemphasize the individual. But sometimes I look at the mainstream system and I think, I think we might have taken the other one a bit far. And probably what we need to do is find that middle ground. I happen to think that there is space, even in an institutionalized social education, for individual choice, for people to have meaningful, to make meaningful decisions about so what they So it sounds learn. like, although Dewey's obviously a great progressive theorist of education, or at least claimed by the progressive tendency, but it sounds like you wouldn't necessarily attach yourself to something like the common core argument in America, where on the whole, and there are exceptions. Progressives tend to think that common common was quite a good idea. And perhaps those as you go to the right feel that it undermines states' rights and ultimately individual rights to choose. I don't have a problem it. saying here are the here are some things that you can't do without. Mm. But I feel like what you really need is you also need space for people to make meaningful choices about what they learn. And in order for that to work, the reality is you need extremely high-quality teachers. It seems insane to me that as a society we would say so loudly and so often, education is the most important thing. This is what we value and we refuse to pay for it. It has to be an industry that will attract high-quality people. I wondered when you moved to Cambridge and by the stage you were postgraduate, but you're coming into the top end of what is Britain's equivalent of, of the Ivy League, whether this eye for strangeness that you'd brought to your first college experience at Brigham Young, whether that came back to you as you went into Cambridge. I think my my jump from where I grew up to BYU was by far the most difficult. Cambridge, though, was a little bit, yeah, it had that quality of stepping through the glass. It doesn't even look like a real place if you're from the United States. It's just strange that this architecture could actually exist. I was lucky in a way, though, because I think all of the things that are difficult about Cambridge, if you come from a, an unorthodox background, a lower class background or whatever it is, I think I kind of got, a, I got to evade all of those almost because I was American. And so a lot of my friends that I've known at Cambridge who came from from a working class background have struggled more and they've said things to me like, well, the second I open my mouth, I feel like people know I don't belong here. And I didn't have that. There's actually not a radical survivalist accent. So I had, when I arrived at BYU, I, I, I had a particular vernacular that 
not a lot of verb subject agreement going on in the way that I I, I spoke, but I caught onto that pretty quickly and worked it out and stopped. So in a way, I feel like I was kind of absolved of the whole thing. People don't know what to make of you when you're from abroad. They, they just kind of, they assume they have no idea and you all start from a clean slate. What relationship then remained for you with your family and with your background? It's such a specific experience and it's also your family. It's a thing on the whole, a, a loving family, but in the end, something that you, you, you felt was misguided. It was a loving family. And my family, you know, part of the book is about estrangement and it's about difficult choices you have to make. I had an older brother who, from the time I was young, had been violent towards me, violent towards others. And it was something my family was just not able to deal with. And the the reality was, as I grew older, as I became, again, air quotes, educated, the more that I changed, the harder it was for me to go back and accept that situation. And it became apparent during toward the end of my time at Cambridge, I wasn't going to be able to continue living like that. My parents were not going to be able to change. And we could love each other, value the history that we had together, but there wasn't a way forward. I either had to stay the same and accept the violence of that relationship, or I could change and I would have to go. And that is what I chose to do. And so the book does have some heavy themes in it about what are the obligations that you owe to your family versus the obligations that you owe to yourself? Are you still in touch with your family? I'm estranged from half my family, and I'm I'm close with uh, the other half, and then my aunts and uncles on my mother's side I'm very close with, but I'm estranged from half. So the the question of education becomes one of, I hope not so much classrooms and getting a certificate so you can make a better living. I really dislike the idea of reducing education to job training, my life turned out very differently because of the education I was given. I made very different choices. And I I think a lot of that was my education. And you could have taught me how to code or taught me how to use Excel and made me more employable, but it just wouldn't have had that same effect. Tara Westover, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'd love to know what you think about Tara's extraordinary story and what you think the implications would be for the education system in America or beyond. We're on email radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. We do appreciate it. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. 